There's a lonely stretch of road in remote northwestern British Columbia, Canada, having a huge number of unsolved missing and murdered women cases. It spans 450 miles between the small cities of Prince George in the province's interior and Prince Rupert on the Pacific coast. Over the past 40 years, more than 40 women mysteriously disappeared or died from foul play in that area. Most of their circumstances remain unknown. Prince Rupert is a small port city of around 12,500 people on Canada's west coast. During summer, temperatures often hover around the mid-teens, but winters can be cruel, with averages often dipping well below freezing. As well as being the transport and shipping hub for British Columbia's north coast, it also happens to receive less sunshine than any other place in the country. What's interesting is that, for the most part, the road is only a bit of infrastructure on either side of you. It's just endless wilderness that's eerie and mysterious. It's really just this one vein running through the whole area. The Highway of Tears is a section of the larger Trans-Canada Yellowhead Highway. Despite its dark past, it remains a lifeline for the towns it connects in western British Columbia, many of which, like Prince Rupert, have large indigenous populations. For the people who live there, everyone's lost someone to the highway, not only to the victims on the Highway of Tears, but also those lost to road accidents, or who simply go missing, never to be found. There's a whole culture around the road, and because it's the only way to get from one place to another, it's such a crucial part of life. Even if you grow up with it, it has a strange value. The Highway of Tears murders and the women's suspicious disappearances began in 1969. They continue today, with the last case of modus operandi similarities happening in December 2018. Although the police officially remain cautious about confirming links, Many in the know suspect that there may be many more crimes with victims fitting the mold. In 2005, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or the RCMP, formed a task force called EPANA to look at the area's unsolved mysteries and murdered women's cases. The RCMP is Canada's federal force having jurisdiction across the nation and in that region. The task force initially identified 18 cases but soon expanded their investigation to include similar files eastward along Route 16 to Hinton, Alberta, as well as south along Highway 97 to Kamloops, British Columbia, and along Highway 5 from Merritt to Clearwater. Two significant independent government inquiries or investigations into the Highway of Tears and related matters also happened. One was a British Columbia Provincial Symposium held in 2006. The other was a recent national commission called the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Inquiry. It's called that because many victims were of Indigenous or First Nations ethnicity. Despite the massive police and public effort, no one's been caught for most of the crimes. As well, many of the victims' bodies remain hidden or undiscovered. These left people wondering if there was a loose serial killer on the Highway of Tears. Without exception, Every victim in the Highway of Tears sphere is female. That includes confirmed murders as well as unsolved disappearances. 
Another harsh fact is many victims originated from Aboriginal or First Nations backgrounds. It's a reality that can't be overlooked. Project Epana, named so after the Inuit spirit that guides souls to the afterlife, used four criteria to qualify a murder or suspicious disappearance as a Highway of Tears case. These parameters were sound and valid, as many homicide and missing persons cases in the North have other circumstances that don't suggest a commonality the Highway of Tears files have. Out of great precaution, investigators are very careful about using the serial killer word. To be on the Highway of Tears list, the EPANA victim profiles are female, high-risk lifestyle, known to hitchhike, and found or last seen near Highway 16, 97, or 5. Females who hitchhike and practice high-risk lifestyle around this remote road network are easy prey. Many come from physical, sexual, and substance abusive backgrounds. Many are sex workers and drug users, as well as having alcoholic tendencies and serious mental or emotional disorders. And many women victims are from indigenous communities with a host of social problems. Police investigators feel most, if not all, Highway of Tears cases are stranger-to-stranger -stranger relationships. The police don't like the serial killer term because of public ramifications, but it's a classic serial killer pattern to pick up strangers and have their way. Most lone operating killers leave little evidence behind at their crime scenes, take little with them, make sure there are no independent witnesses, and they rarely confess. That combination makes these predators so hard to catch. First Nations women are particularly vulnerable. Along the main Highway of Tears' stretch, from Prince Rupert to Prince George, there are 23 different Indigenous communities or reserves. Most of these little places have few facilities like medical services, educational outlets, and recreational opportunities. As well, Poverty is a gigantic problem in Canada's First Peoples settlements. They simply can't afford private transportation. Combined with personal issues and the need to be mobile, many at-risk women are alone on the side of the road with their thumb out. They're perfect opportunities for men with deviant desire. One of these opportunistic killers was Cody Lejibikov. Cody Allen Lejibikov seemed like a regular Canadian kid. At six foot two inches and 220 pounds, he was made for sports and has spent much of his young life snowboarding and playing hockey in North British Columbia's Fort St. James area. After high school, he became a mechanic at a Ford dealership in nearby Prince George. He started dating a new girlfriend, seriously enough that the then 20-year-old spent Thanksgiving 2010 with the young lady and her family. But Cody Lejibikov allegedly had a secret life, and that wasn't just limited to the hours he spent online, where friends on social networking sites, including Nexopia, knew him as one country boy. He was accused of having murdered three adult women and a 10th grade girl over 2009 and 2010. 15-year-old Lauren Leslie had told her mother she was going out for coffee with a friend when she left their Fraser Lake home one fall afternoon in 2010. This friend may have been Cody Lejibikov. Lauren's mother, Donna Leslie, 
has told CBC News that she thinks her daughter had become familiar with Lejibikov online, then met up with him at a party. Her father, Doug Leslie, recalls that Lauren had hundreds of online friends who she'd never met in person, and that after her disappearance, a few of them even came forward to tell him that his daughter had helped them to resist suicide. Lauren's girlfriend, Charity Funk, said she'd never heard of Cody Lejibikov, but that Lauren may have known him through classmates. Late on November 27, 2010, two Royal Canadian Mounted Police officers, one from Fort St. James and one from Vanderhoof, met on a deserted road off Highway 27 to update each other on their jointly patrolled area. When they saw a GMC pickup truck speeding on an old logging road that they knew was used for illegal hunting, they pulled the driver over. They then asked a local game warden to help confirm their poaching suspicions by tracking whatever animal its driver, Cody Lejibikov, might have been hunting. What they found in the fresh snow wasn't deer or elk. It was the body of Lauren Leslie. Lauren Dawn Leslie was legally blind, with 50% vision in her better eye. Family and friends recall her as loving and trusting, but tough and principled. When the Chaco Valley Secondary School officials wouldn't give her and her girlfriend a couple's discount to a school dance, they wore gay pride t-shirts in protest and braved the taunts of classmates. Ironically, she wanted to be a forensic pathologist when she grew up. And the Leslies and Lejibikovs distantly knew each other. The victims and the accused grandparents were part of overlapping social groups. Donna Leslie says she feels sorry for Lejibikov and his family. Once they discovered Lauren Leslie, there were other bodies that investigators would soon connect to the case. The other three victims that prosecutors wanted to tie to Cody Lejibikov might not draw everyone's sympathy quite so readily as did the teenage girl Mounties first stumbled on. The Canadian press has alleged that Jill Stuchenko, Cynthia Maas, and Natasha Montgomery were sex workers. 35-year-old Jill Stuchenko wanted to be a singer. The single mother worked for Ricky Black at her Prince George escort agency, Black Orchid, for 10 years. She pulled extra shifts for other agencies and, according to her boss, freelanced on the streets. Stuchenko allegedly battled a drug problem. Friends and family reported Stuchenko missing October 22, 2009. Five days later, she turned up dead in a gravel pit near Otway Road at the edge of Prince George. Cynthia Maz's story was similar. Like Stuchenko, she was a 35-year-old single mother. Friends reported her missing September 23, 2010. Her body was found on the banks of the Fraser River in L.C. Gunn Park, which the Globe and Mail asserts was frequented by sex workers, on October 9, 2010. Multiple newspapers quote Maz's family as describing her as a poster child for vulnerability in our society and decrying her unprotected position as a social victim of disability, ethnicity, class, and gender. 23-year-old Natasha Montgomery was reported missing the same day as Maz. She had been a figure skater and a baseball player, and she was another young mother and alleged sex worker. When her family in Quesnel didn't hear from her for a few weeks, they called the RCMP. Authorities haven't found Montgomery's body, 
but they've said that they've been able to connect her to Cody Lejipikov and that they have enough evidence to charge him with her murder. Many in his remote corner of British Columbia are shocked. Others will wonder if they should have realized something was wrong. Cody Lejipikov's family was well known around Fort St. James and neighboring Stewart Lake, the small towns at the end of Highway 27. His mother's family, the Goodwins, owned one of Stewart Lake's three sawmills. They sold the company's timber rights in a multi-million dollar deal in 2009. Lejbikov graduated from Fort St. James Secondary in 2008. His brother graduated a few years later. His sister graduated there too. His father was his hockey coach. Grandfather Roy Goodwin tells the press that Cody was popular, a good boy who liked to fish for trout and hunt grouse. But an anonymous friend told McLean's magazine that Cody Lejbikov has always had a knack for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Until 2010, that just meant he'd been in a few bar fights. He had no criminal record prior to accusations that he murdered four women. He hadn't seemed like a young man with a vendetta against women. At the time of his arrest, not only was he dating a young lady who was studying at the College of New Caledonia, but he was living with three female friends in Prince George. Looking back, though, one friend points to at least one piece of potentially strange behavior. An anonymous source told the National Post newspaper that Lejbikov abruptly disappeared for a few weeks just before Lauren Leslie's murder and that he has never explained his absence to friends. Investigators, led by RCMP inspector Brendan Fitzpatrick, sorted through Cody Lejbikov's 2009 and 2010 activities. Authorities immediately charged Cody Lejbikov with first-degree murder after finding Lauren Leslie's body. The three additional murder charges came on October 17, 2011. Lejbikov's use of social networking and dating sites and the text messages he sent from his Android phone are among the focuses of the Mounties' investigation. They spent weeks examining the truck he was driving when he was pulled over and searched the two homes he lived in, and they've sent the remains of Lauren Leslie and Cynthia Maas to Pennsylvania for special forensic analysis not available in Canada. Lejbikov's trial on four counts of murder was originally scheduled to begin in September 2013, but was delayed a month until October and then again until June 2014. Lejbikov pleaded not guilty to all four counts of murder. The judge and 12 jurors heard testimony from 93 Crown witnesses and the defendant. Lejbikov testified during his trial that he was involved in three of the deaths, but claimed that he did not commit the killings. He alleged that a drug dealer and two accomplices, whom he would only name as X, Y, and Z, were the actual murderers. Prosecutors did not accept this attempt to plead guilty to the lesser charge of second-degree murder. Lejbikov was convicted on four counts of second-degree murder on September 11, 2014, and on September 16, 2014, Lejbikov was sentenced to life in prison with no parole for 25 years. He was added to the National Sex Offender Registry, given the sexual assaults committed as part of the murders, and Lejbikov's apparent degradation of the victims' bodies. In February 2015, 
Lejbikov filed an appeal due to decisions against the change of venue and the defendant's legal representation. In September 2016, all three judges in the British Columbia Court of Appeal case endorsed the original judge's decision. Lejbikov was originally imprisoned at the Kent Institution, but was transferred in March 2019 to the Warkworth Institution.